0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may you be with us today as we hear from your word. May you speak to us, and may we respond to what you've said. We ask this all in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, one of the things I think we, we learn earliest in life is that it's unfair. That even though we might try hard to achieve certain things, that doesn't mean that the unfairness of life might not catch up to us in the end. And if you've, uh, if you've had siblings, then you definitely know how this goes. So I'm the oldest of three, and, and my sister was at the parsonage yesterday because she was around and we were showing her um, what it's like. So maybe people got to see here, my, and my brother's been around some too, so we're all really close in age. Uh, my sister is, she was born in 1994. So she's four years younger than me. So we're, we're really close. So at this point, it doesn't seem like there's that much difference between us. But growing up, I was always bigger than my brother and my sister. Um, and my brother, who's just two years younger than me, I'm definitely was bigger than him. And I would, I would, you know, I don't know, I'd try to do things with him and he would just whine around about things. At least that's how it seemed to me. And, and there's one thing, I even told my mom this yesterday. I don't know why it came up, but um, it was always I was the one being selfish. It didn't matter if we both wanted something. He was the one that was supposed to be able to have it, and I was the one being selfish because I wanted it. And that just drove me crazy. And I, I told her that even yesterday. I said, I'm like, the thing is, we were both selfish. Maybe we were both wrong. But the, the truth is, I was bigger. I was probably being a little, a bully or something, but I learned early on that life isn't always fair, or what I think should be fair doesn't always work out, but um, as we get older, life becomes unfair in different ways, and in sometimes ways that might seem more serious and frustrating, Uh, and as we've been going through this Ecclesiastes study, what we've been continuing exploring is the idea of is there anything that's meaningful in life, or is there anything that brings us profit? Is there anything that we do work in life, and in the end, we see the results as profit or as, as meaningful? And so far, we've, just, we've seen there's not a lot that the author, um, who we've been calling Coalette, sees as meaningful. But today, we're going to continue to explore with him different areas that he continues to look for meaning in life. So if you want to open up your Bibles to chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, um, and that is page 576 in the Pew Bible, I encourage you to follow along because it'll be easier to follow and to see where we're going as we go through Ecclesiastes. So chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, this is how Colette opens as he continues to search for meaning in life. This is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comfort. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So Kohelet, who we've said, we don't know exactly who wrote the book. And um, the person who speaks in the first person throughout this identifies himself as the teacher. Um, that's how we translate it in English. And we've said, well, we don't know exactly how to translate that word, but it's more of a title. So that's where we're going to use his word Kohelet. T- that is his the word in Hebrew. So Kohelet is searching For meaning in life and now he's considering the fairness of life so he's already looked through wisdom and folly he's looked at the cycle of life and now he turns to fairness so he first considers those who are oppressed so he looks at the world he lives in and he sees that there are people who are oppressed by fellow human beings He doesn't give a lot of detail about who these oppressed people are. But what he does say is he sees this as injustice and that it points to life being unfair. So oppression is a word that that people use in our day some, depending on what type of people you're around and what kind of political persuasion you're a part of. But it's very much a political word. And it has a lot of a political association. But the question we need to ask is, Well, what were the people who were being oppressed like in the day of Coalette? So in the ancient Near East, which is the time period in the region where this was written, there was no such thing as a middle class. You were either wealthy or you were dirt poor. There would have been some very small number of people who might have been considered middle class but it wasn't like what we see today in the United States. So the people who were poor were basically left with nothing. And there was no social security nets. There was no food stamps or disability pay or anything. You were just on your own. So this is the circumstance that people were in. And the thing is, a lot of these people weren't actually directly oppressed, meaning they weren't like slaves, they weren't in some way in a forced labor circumstance. They were simply indirectly oppressed because their circumstances made it impossible for them to change their life situation. So as we've often said, um, you know, a good American can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. This wasn't possible for these people because there was nothing for them to grab a hold of to even pull up. They probably didn't even have any boots to begin with. So we don't have a lot of direct oppression in our culture either. You know, slavery's been outlawed. But there's probably places we could find that. But we need to consider as Christians, are there actually people who are indirectly oppressed by the circumstances in life. And this became really clear for Megan and I when we were going through uh, our training to be foster parents. One thing they pointed, put us through is they, uh, they did this exercise where they said, okay, well, we want you to, uh, to kind of understand what it's like to be a parent who ends up having their children go into the foster care system. So they gave us a scenario, and it was something like uh, your child's sick and you don't have any sick days, and you can either leave them with uh, your grandmother who whenever your child's sick, they get sick easily. So are you gonna leave your child with their grandmother and risk her getting sick? Are you gonna skip work and miss pay so that you can take your child to work to to the doctor? Or are you gonna wait and, and see if they get better before you take them to the doctor? And then somewhere in there, there's also a question of are you going to, so if you skip work and you don't have enough money, Are you going to skip rent, or are you going to pay your rent and hope you get food some other way? So they gave us this scenario, and there, there's these four choices, and none of the choices were good. None of the choices were good. Either you were sending your kid to your sick grandmother, and you weren't taking to the doctor, or you're taking the doctor and you're missing work, and then you're either not paying your rent or you're not buying food and hoping you get it somehow. So, there's people in our world who don't have any good choices, meaning that every choice in front of them, every path they could take, doesn't end up good. And there's nothing they can do about it. And sometimes it is because of their own choices. But a lot of times those people don't actually have the skills to make the choices they need. And it's not like they don't want to, they just don't have the skills. Or maybe they have some sort of mental illness that makes it hard for them to be able to cope with everyday circumstances in life. There are people in our world who are oppressed, and a lot of times it was not by anything they did on their own. They were born into a circumstance or something happened out of their control, or they got addicted to a drug that took control of them. But how come it's those people and not us, right? Right? And Coalette looks at this and he says, You know what? I see people who are oppressed. And I see that a lot of times it might even be their fellow humans that have the structures in such a way that they can't get out. And that's unfair. It's unjust. And he looks at this and he says, You know what? It's better for people not even to have been born. Dead people are better off because they don't have to live in this injustice. And for those who have never been born, it's even better yet. So this has been a common theme throughout Ecclesiastes. The idea that death might actually be better than life. Let's continue. Uh, So verse 4, he continues by saying this. He says, And I saw that all the toil and all the achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. "'Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. "'Better one handful with tranquility "'than two handfuls with toil "'and chasing after the wind. "'Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. "'There was a man all alone. "'He had neither son nor brother. "'There was no end to his toil, "'yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. "'For whom am I toiling?' he asked, "'and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment?' This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So Colette's going from people who are oppressed to now people who are wealthy. And he sees there's this, this person who's been working and working and working, but he says they don't have a brother or a son. And they wonder, well, who am I working for? They're not happy with what they have because they've been building wealth, but they don't have an heir to receive it. So Coalette looks at this and he sees this as showing that life is unfair. How come certain parents or certain husbands and wives are able to have kids and others aren't? How come some people have heirs and some don't? How come some people have brothers and family and others don't? And then he also says that achievement comes. From people's envy of one another. We see what other people have and we want it, so we work hard to get it. So both of these circumstances, he's talking about people who don't have relationships. He says it's unfair in life because there's people who don't have relationships, either by their own choices or because of circumstances they can't control. They don't have anyone to pass their wealth onto. They don't have anyone who they can enjoy life with. How often is it the case that we look at other people and we want what they have? And then there's probably people in our, in our congregation or people that you know who have deeply wanted to have a child and have had such trouble having one. Why is it that some people have that so easily but others don't? Why is it that life is so unfair? that's what Colette says. He says, I look and it seems unfair. But he does notice one little piece of hope in verse 9. He says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But who can keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Coelet notices that relationships might actually be a little bit of hope in all of this unfairness and meaninglessness. He says, well, you know, life is meaningless, but if you have someone to do it with, maybe it's just a little bit better. So as we've been going, one thing we've been talking about is we've been wondering, is there hope or is there meaning in the small things? It's been a continuing uh, theme the last couple weeks. And again, it's Colette here giving us a glimpse. Because remember, we have to wait, we have to wait to see what he's going to conclude? Is he giving us a glimpse of hope in the small things? Our relationships in our lives, our family, our friends, the people we do life with, is that meaningful and does that bring us meaning? We have to keep going to see. Bacolet continues in verse 13 and he sees something else that's unfair in life. In verse 13 he says, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So now Colette goes back to a king who has power and wealth. Now this king has power and wealth, but all of a sudden, someone who's not his heir rises up from poverty and takes the throne. So even people with power and wealth don't have any meaning because maybe they lose it all in a minute. Maybe someone comes from underneath and overthrows them. And you know what's interesting is, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. So even the one who received power from the bottom, someone like, if we think about the story of Aladdin, Aladdin goes from someone who's stealing on the street to trying to marry the daughter of the sultan. But maybe one day when Aladdin's sultan, they won't be happy with him either. So even when you get the power, it's meaningless. Even when you get the wealth, maybe it's meaningless. So put simply for Coalette, life is unfair. And because it's unfair, it's meaningless. Now, I think a lot of us have maybe felt this before. We've felt like life's meaningless because it's unfair. So Colette looks around and he sees people who are oppressed and that they're alone and that they lose what they work for. And he concludes that life must be unfair and meaningless. Now, going into chapter 5, he looks for hope in a place that maybe all of us would look for hope. He says this in chapter 5, verse 1, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. Do not know what they are, where they are going. No, do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares. And many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vows. It is better to not make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at you? Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the words of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear, O God. So Colette's created a lot of hopelessness, and he says, well, maybe if I turn to God, there'll be hope. So he turns to God, but what he sees is a God who doesn't like people to come to him. He observed a God who is in heaven while humans are on earth, so there's a lot of distance. He, he observes that it's better for people to go to God and to listen and to not speak He says, don't make vows because you might be led into sin. This overall picture that Colette paints of God is bleak. Because in the end, he says, the only human interaction that I think we should have with God is fear. So Ecclesiastes doesn't always jive with what we believe I've said that. I said sometimes we need to wait to the end, and this is one of those places that makes us really uncomfortable, because for Colette, he sees going to God as a problem, because in some ways, he sees God as the source for the problem, because God has put humans into this meaningless life cycle that we can't escape. But we have to wait till we get towards the end to see the resolve for that. But for Colette, it's still, he hasn't found meaning. And he turns finally to wealth, to the top of the power structure. And he says this in verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So we're going back again to this idea of those who are oppressed. And the reality is, the people who are oppressing them are the government officials and the leaders in the land. But the thing is, each leader has someone on top of them who is pushing them to do the oppression until you get to the king. So you have layers and layers of injustice. And what Koalat sees is even if you get the power in life you've always wanted, there's always someone above you who you have to answer to. And he says, maybe life is meaningless. And then he continues in verse 10, he says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are there to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart." They take nothing from their toil that they may carry in their hands. So he sees two things when people have wealth. Either one, they hoard their wealth until they lose it. Or two, even once they have their wealth, they eventually die and they have to leave it behind. No matter what, all of us leave life the same way. The same way we came in with nothing. And Colette looks at this and he says, What's the point of striving for any of this? Because wealth is meaningless, I have to lose I lose it, or I hoard it and it's taken away from me, or someone above me takes it from me. Life is meaningless. And he he concludes it this way. He says in verse sixteen, "This too is a grievous evil, as everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain? Since the toil, since they toil for the wind, all their work, all their days, they eat in darkness and with great frustration, affliction, and anger." So as we follow Colette, again, he has led us into a hole. He said, "Life's unfair." He said, I look at God and I see that all he wants to do is oppress us and we should fear him. He says, now I look at wealth and the people who have it and they end up dying just like everyone else and you can't take it with you. So what meaning is there in life? Colette's considering us Or he's forcing us to consider a question. He wants us to to consider, is power, status, and wealth meaningful? Because we live in a culture that wants all of those things. They want power. Again, this Supreme Court justice stuff that was happening the last couple weeks, for both sides, it was all about power. Who has the power? Who gets the power? It was about status. Who can be known and famous? And it's about wealth. All those things go together. But are those meaningful? Because in some ways, a lot of us strive for those things. Or we have to resist always to fall into their traps. But is there a place where we can find meaning? This is what Kohelet concludes with in verses 18 through 20 of verse 5. He says, this is what I have observed to be good. That is, it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So, again, he concludes with one of these eat, drink, and be merry passages. We've talked about them the last two weeks. Maybe there's joy and meaning in these small things. And again, Colette says, It's not like I'm indulging in pleasure. He says, These are gifts of God. So if you can enjoy those small things, you can enjoy the gifts God has given you. At least that's the perspective that Colette takes. Because he sees these small things as gifts from God. So are power, status, and riches meaningful? Or should we be enjoying The small things. This is the third week we've been pushed to consider this question. Should we enjoy the small things? And there will be resolution as we get there. But we have to wait towards the end of the book. But I will say a little bit about relationships. And I've talked about these in the past. But Colette addresses them directly this week. As humans, we are created to be relational, meaning we are created to connect with other people. And so much of our culture pushes us to disconnect from other people, even if it's under the false impression that what we're doing is connecting. So you think about what is social media? It's a way for us to connect with other people without actually connecting. What is texting and email? It's a way for us to communicate without actually using a lot of what comes with communication. Eye contact, body language, voice inflection. We create things in our lives to make it easier for us to communicate and to have relationships, but then we actually are impoverished in our relationships. How many of us actually have people we consider close friends who know the deepest parts of us and if we don't have those things how can we expect anyone to be able to speak into our life and to help us when we need help how are we able to cry out and say this is what's going on and I can't get it out I can't get out of it on my own so maybe maybe power status and riches are are meaningless but maybe those relationships and being able to enjoy the small things is a little glimpse of the bigger picture we're going to get to as we look for where there actually might be meaning in life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people and we, we ask that you'd help us to have good relationships May we learn to have the vulnerability and honesty to be upfront with people. May we be able to open up the emotions that we oppress. And may we be able to actually connect with other people so that we can learn that yes, life is better when you do it with other people. And the meaninglessness begins to find meaning. Lord, I ask that you be with us as we begin beginning to journey through Ecclesiastes in search for meaning, and may we begin to empathize with the people in life who feel this way about everything, and who have been beat down by life and just see that it all feels meaningless, and may you help us to come into their lives and to have meaningful relationships so that we can begin to point them towards the good news of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.